0: If you would take your Bible and turn to 1 John, chapter 3, 1 John, chapter 3, I know this is Anniversary Sunday, but we're continuing to talk about things that were from the beginning, we're reminded of, and uh, John seems to emphasize this over and over again about the love of God and our love one for another is so vital to our Christian life, to our Christian experience. So 1 John chapter 3, we're going to start at verse 18, read to the end of the chapter. says, My little children, let us not love in word, neither in tongue but in deed and in truth. And hereby we know that we are of the truth and shall assure our hearts before him. For if our heart condemn us, God is greater than our heart and knoweth all things. Beloved, if our heart condemneth not, then have we confidence toward God. And whatsoever we ask, we receive of him because we keep his commandments and do those things that are pleasing in his sight. And this is his commandment, that we should believe on the name of his Son, Jesus Christ, and love one another as he gave us commandment. And he that keepeth his commandments and dwelleth in him, and he in him. And hereby we know that he abideth in us by the spirit which he hath given us. The Lord, that's blessing to his word. Let's pray. <clears throat> Heavenly Father, we do thank you again for the opportunity we have to assemble together. Thank you for the freedoms that we enjoy and this nation to meet together. We pray that you'd help our leaders convict them of their sin need to uphold our constitution, the laws of our land. I pray that your people would be faithful, be witnesses and testimonies, help us to be faithful. Lord, we pray that wherever thy word is preached across this land and this world today, that sinners would be convicted of their sin and brought to repentance and faith in Christ. Saints would be edified. Father, we pray that we'd be edified today. And that you would be glorified in our midst. And Lord, if there's any in our midst who are not born again, do not have the love of God dwelling in them, I pray the Spirit of God will work in their hearts, can bring conviction and repentance, we pray. Help me as I preach, give ears to hear, your hearts to obey, and minds to understand and comprehend, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. The title of the message this morning is Having Confidence in His Love. You know, when I was a child, you know, I was a child once a long time ago, now I know, but sometimes I acted like a child. And I did things that I knew would be in conflict with my parents. That's acting like a child. In those times, I always felt uneasy around them. Now, they didn't change. The problem was me. You know, other times, and I didn't do anything in conflict with them, I would feel at ease or at rest around them. See, it all is based upon doing what they commanded or taught. You know, in the same way, Our confidence in relationships rests not on other people, but on our relationship with the Lord. Walking with Him and having confidence that He gives. That is the basis of our confidence in Him. But as human beings, you know, there's some things we struggle with. And we have problems because we are human and we have a fallen nature, a nature that's prone to sin. And so, as we consider this passage this morning and and talking about confidence in His love, I want to notice several things. First of all, the confusion of conscience. In verse 20, it says this, For if our our heart condemn us, God is greater than our heart. And knoweth all things. Now the word heart here is defined of a soul, conscience of good or bad deeds. Our conscience. Every man has a conscience. However, so it, so it's, you know it's our conscience that that tells us whether our deed is good or whether our deed is bad. It, it's kind of a witness to us. Uh. In fact, in Romans chapter 2, Paul makes mention of that when he's writing to the churches in Rome. And he says that the Gentiles, which have not the law, but do by nature the things contained in the law, these having not the law, are a law unto themselves, which show the work of the law written in their hearts, their conscience also bearing witness, and their thoughts are meanwhile accusing or else excusing. So your conscience can accuse you that you've done something wrong, or it will excuse you. However, a conscience is affected or can be badly damaged by experiences of life. Therefore, our conscience is not a reliable guide into what is right or wrong. It's not a strongly reliable guide. You know, our conscience is a guide whereby we set boundaries in life. And if you have a defiled conscience or a damaged conscience, you know, you know that... that it's, it's a conscience that has trouble setting boundaries and, and, and be, because their conscience has been destroyed uh, by others that have been manipulated and used and so on and abused their conscience and violated their personal boundaries. And therefore, many times these people lack guidance or a point of reference. You know, there's a lot of people growing up today. You think about it. There's, there's many people growing up today that have no point of reference From the past, from parents, as to what is right and wrong. You know, I had a point of reference. From my parents. This is right and this is wrong. They taught me some morals. But you look at today's world. In our modern world. Many children have no point of reference to what is right and what is wrong. What is acceptable and what is considered not acceptable. And therefore their conscience is damaged. They don't have this point of reference. And most, many times those people can be easily taken advantage of. I read there, Romans 2.15, it says, "...which show the work of the law written in their hearts, their conscience also bearing witness, and their thoughts the meanwhile accusing or else excusing one another." And we have an example of this in John 8, in verse 9. Remember, they brought the woman caught in adultery to Jesus. Of course, the obvious question is, if he caught her in adultery, where's the man? You know, that's kind of a no-brainer. But for some reason, they didn't bring the man, they brought the woman. Uh, and they which heard it, and, of course, Jesus said that you without sin cast the first stone at her. Because the, the law said, they said, hey, now the law says, Moses said, we're the stoner. What sayest thou? And Jesus, you know, he rode on the ground. He, he stalled. He wrote on the ground. He, you know what I think he was doing? I think he was giving them some time to think it's over a little bit. You know, it helps sometimes if you ponder things. And so he's writing on the ground, and they pressured him, and finally he said, Ye that without sin, cast the first stone in her. And then John 8 9 says this, and they which heard it, heard what he said, being convicted by their own conscience. So their conscience accused them went out one by one, beginning at the eldest until the last. And Jesus left alone and the woman standing in the midst. So their conscience accused them the well, you know, they stood there and thought about. Well, I know I'm not without sin, so he walks off. And you know, in the next one, he's thinking, "Oh, I know I'm not without sin," so he walks away. And, and until there was none left, the conscience accused him. But Titus one fifteen says, "Unto the pure, all things are pure, but unto them that are defiled and unbelieving, is nothing pure. But even their mind and conscience is defiled." So here's the confusion. Concerning conscience is defiled. So there's nothing pure. They, they don't understand what is pure, what is not. However, the conscience can be purified through God. Hebrews 9.14 says, How much more shall the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without spot to God, purge your conscience. And that word purge means to purify or to cleanse. So he can purify your conscience from dead works to serve the living and true God. Uh, Hebrews ten twenty two says let us draw near with a true heart and full assurance of faith having our hearts sp- sprinkled from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water you might say my conscience has been defiled ha- uh, let me just say this all of us have had our conscience has been defiled at some point it's all been defiled when we compare ourselves to God our conscience has all been defiled at some, to some degree others more than some more than others but God can purify our conscience. He can, he can render it effective again. Uh, Hebrews 10.22 says, Let's draw near with a true heart and full assurance of faith, having a heart sprinkled from an even conscience, and our bodies washed with pure water. So we're to draw, heart, draw near with a heart full assurance of faith. And then 1 Peter 3.16 says, Having a good conscience, that is, toward God, that whereas they speak evil of you, as of evildoers, they may be ashamed that falsely accused your good conversation in Christ. So, so the, the, the problem with the conscience is here, and, and this is what we, uh, John is referring to under the direction of the Spirit of God, when he says our heart condemn us, or our conscience condemn us, uh, that God is greater than our heart. You know, sometimes our conscience condemns us, Wrongly. Wrongly. Because, you know, as human beings, you know, when we are faced with truth, you know what else we're faced with? If I do this, what will Brother Howard think? Or if I do this, what will my wife think? Or if I do this, what will the church think? Or what will... My husband think, or what will my parents think, or on and on it goes. Or my friends, see, they all affect our conscience. See, sometimes our conscience can affect, can, can 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 confuse us. Uh, But we can purify our conscience by filling our minds and our hearts with truth, and thereby giving our conscience the Word of God as a point of reference or guide. Of course, this takes time. It takes effort. It takes putting the Word into our hearts. It takes reading and meditating on the Word of God, receiving the instruction... Uh, and you know, the Bible gives us examples after example, as after examples in the scripture, of how others responded to the truth. Whether they responded in a right way or a wrong way, and the consequences thereof. Re- in real life circumstances, your know, condemnation can well up inside us that has nothing to do with our standing. Before God, it may be the work of the enemy of our souls. After all, he is the accuser of the brethren. Or the work of an overactive or bruised conscience. And at those times, we trust in what God's word says about us and our standing. Not how we feel about it. Spurgeon said this, quote, Sometimes our heart condemns us. But in doing so, it gives a wrong verdict. And then we have the satisfaction of being able to take the case to a higher court. For God is greater than our heart and knoweth all things. Unquote. So when we're confused, we to take our case to the higher court. To the testimony that God gives us of His Word and of His Son, Jesus Christ. For he knoweth all things. So, we see here the confusion of our conscience. The second thing we see here are the conditions of love. In verse 18 again, it says, My little children, let us not love in word, neither in tongue, but in deed and in truth. And hereby we know that we are of the truth. Shall assure our hearts before him. We're not to love in word or in tongue. The word word has the idea of The act of speaking or speech. And really it carries the idea that it's really not worth mentioning. It's really not of much value. In other words, the things that you say aren't as important as your deeds. The tongue, of course, just refers to the organ of speech. So we need to ask ourselves, we think about that, not in word or in tongue, are your words valued or are they empty, meaningless, like Belteshazzar. Remember in Daniel chapter 5, Belteshazzar has this, this, this dream of the hand and the finger writing on the wall, and he and and calls in his wise man, they can't interpret it. And so the, finally the, the, the mother of Belteshazzar says, uh, hey, uh, hey, Belteshazzar, I just want to remind you of something. I do remember that your father, actually, it was his grandfather, Nebuchadnezzar, had this man in his kingdom that could interpret dreams. And I think you ought to call him. His name's Daniel. And so he calls Daniel. And Daniel comes in, and he stands before the king, and the king makes him all these glowing promises. How he's gonna, if he can interpret his dream, he's gonna give him a golden chain about his neck, and you know, robes to wear, and all the, all this kind of things. And Daniel said, "Let your gifts be to thyself." No, words, your words are of no value. And he interp- but he did interpret the dream. And the way, the reason his words were of no value is, he says, "Cause this night, you're finished." And it was that very night that Cyrus the Persian marched in through the gates of the river. They, they, they blocked the river. They barricaded the river some way so it stopped the water flow. So they were able to march, march right up the riverbed and open the leaved gates and right into the city of Babylon. And Belshazzar was slain that very night. He said, your, your words are pompous, meaningless, empty. Somebody has said, quote, it's easier to be enthusiastic about humanity with a capital H than it is to love individual men and women. Loving everybody in general may be an excuse for loving nobody in particular. Unquote. I mean, you could say, well, I love, I love people. Okay. How about give me some examples of people you love? Then that's That has meaning. Just to say, I love everybody, really doesn't mean anything. So no, we need love in deed and in truth. John tells us here in verse 18. It means in acts or things done with which we are occupied, love is demonstrated by our attitudes and our actions. In truth, what is true under any matter of consideration. You see, not everything people think is an act of love. Is. You know, we have a very confusing idea in our world today of what love is. Giving kids or adults what they want, do you know, is sometimes just wrong? Sometimes the most loving answer you can give a person is No. No. There are limitations to love when measured by human understanding. We know the Bible says that God is love. Well, let me ask you something then. Why did he destroy the people of Canaan? If God is love, why did he destroy the people of Canaan? Or why did he bring destruction and captivity to his own people, Israel? See, there's, humanity has a real problem with that. They have a real problem with saying that God is love, and then we say over here, see over here, that God destroyed, the, through Israel, God destroyed the Canaanites. And then through the Babylonians, God destroyed Israel. And then you say that God is love? Yeah. It's true. It's just you lack understanding into what real love is. See, love can only be realized or comprehended when there are boundaries of right and wrong. You know, women for abortion are all about love for their own bodies. But all of a sudden, that love has no respect for another's life. It has no choice in the matter. And yet we're accused of not being loving to women because we're not for abortion. You see, but love, quote-unquote, that violates the rights or boundaries of another who is without a choice in the matter is not love. True love is governed by the holiness of God. Go to Romans chapter 13. Romans chapter 13. Romans chapter 13 verse 8 says, O no man anything but to love one another. For he that loveth another hath fulfilled the law. Wait a minute. The law of God condemns. How can it be loving? Well, it says, he that loveth another hath fulfilled the law. It goes on. For this, here's, here's, here's what this means. Thou shalt not commit adultery. Thou shalt not kill. Thou shalt not steal. Thou shalt not bear false witness. Thou shalt not covet. If there be any other commandment, it's briefly comprehended this saying. Namely, thou shalt love thy neighbor as thyself. Love worketh no ill to his neighbor. Therefore, love is the fulfilling of the law. So l- true love is governed by the holiness of God. By demonstrating love to others, you are fulfilling or obeying the law of God. That is the standard of God's holiness. You know, love doesn't take another spouse. Well, you might, well, well the guy might say, Why well, love her? So you've stolen. Love doesn't take what belongs to another doesn't take another's life doesn't take another's property that's stealing doesn't lie or falsely accuse others to manipulate or get or uh, 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 what they want falsely accuse false witness is love does not desire without regard to others that's covetousness So what is the limit of this kind of love? The only limit is the one that love itself imposes. When giving to a person if meeting his perceived or immediate need does him more harm than, does him harm instead of good then the loving thing to do is not give him what he asks for. But instead what he really needs. You know the Modern parenting method is. You don't displease your child. What the Bible says. He that spareth the rod. Hateth his son. Hateth his son. And I've seen a lot of children. In my 60 years of living. And I noticed something. That those that. Don't correct their children. Regret it. They live a lot of heartache. 99% of the time. Well, I love them. No, you didn't. You left them do what they wanted. And human nature left to do what they want. will sin against God every time. See, that's the limit. You know, sometimes what a person needs to learn what is right, what they need to learn what is right is to be left in need. You know, God allowed adversities in our lives for training in trust and obedience. He allows it. You know, the problem today in our our nation particularly is that 99% of the time, the government will cater to those with purposed needs. Now, when I say purposed needs, they create their own needs on purpose. Because they're unwilling to work and earn their own way. You know, people milk the welfare system, which is our tax dollars being given to those who will not obey God. And sometimes you can you you can give to people who are out of fellowship with God and demanding that you meet their expectations. You know, and... and, and If you give in to them, you're only aiding them in their sin. I know some of you may remember a couple years ago, there was this man who sued his parents for kicking him out of the house and not helping him. Well, it turns out the man was 40 years old, 40 or 44, somewhere in there, he lived in his parents' basement. They, he never paid any rent. He never paid for any electricity. He never, he never you know, helped in any way. He just thought he should be able to live in his parents' house for all his life without any costs and not have to work. And they should provide it for him. Praise the Lord, he lost his case. What he needed was taken out and horsewhipped. That's what he needed. See, here he is. Here's a person demanding that others meet his expectations, which he was required by God to do on his own. One writer said this, quote, There is only one answer for any marriage or any vital relationship, that is to exchange that dividing wall of hostility for the cross of Christ. It is to stop all demands that the other change. It is to die daily to self, continually ask the Lord, what in me is contributing to the breakdown of this marriage or relationship, and what is there in me that needs to die? Unquote. See, love doesn't demand of others. Love gives to others. Love gives to others. And so we're to love indeed and in truth, but we need to love in truth. We need to do it what is right. What is right? Not enable people in their sin. If you enable people in their sin, you are helping them in their sin. And that is not love. It's not helpful. So, then we we'll also notice the third thing here the confidence that God gets. We see the confusion of confidence, conscience, the conditions of love. There is a limit, there are limitations. And then thirdly, the confidence that God gives. And we, we see this through verses 18 through 24. And, and I want to start with reading at verse, verse uh 21, where it says, Beloved, if our heart condemn us not, then have we confidence toward God. And I want to give a couple of definitions here. The word confidence means free and fearless confidence, cheerful courage, boldness, uh, the undoubting confidence of Christians' relative. It has to do, or relative, with their relationship with God. So it all has to do with your relationship with God. Not your relationship with other people, but your relationship with God. It's really the idea of liberty to speak one's mind because you have fellowship with God. And assurance with God. And the witness of a Spirit. And we'll see that here in verse 24. Uh... So confidence toward God. The word toward means of a mental direction. So, so our confidence is in God. We're not talking about confidence from other people. We're talking about confidence that comes from God, with regards to God. So if we can have confidence in our standing with God, it will give us boldness to withstand the assaults of men, of people. Confidence. You know, people, sometimes we display our lack of confidence in God by getting defensive. Getting defensive when there's personal attacks or with personal attacks. You know, sometimes people, they can't refute you, so they attack your person. You know, one of the things that Jesus mastered was he never got defensive. Now, why didn't he? Because he had absolute confidence in his relationship with his heavenly father. He knew he was right. He walked in the truth. And when you walk in the truth, God gives you a confidence of being right. It's not arrogance. It's just confidence that God gives. And Jesus... You know, the Samaritan woman said some offensive things to him. Well, you Jews... You know, you worship there in Jerusalem, but we worship here in this mountain. And, and you Jews have no dealings with the Samaritans. You know, he, she was really trying to pick a fight. But he didn't take the bait. He just continued to confront her and, and, and state truth. You know, and that's how we need to respond. But sometimes, you know, we can get defensive because we're not sure... About our stand, where we are, or what we believe. You know, We need to have confidence in what we believe. You know, if, our, if our fellowship with God is right, then our standing with man will be right. Now, let me say that again. If our fellowship with God is right, our standing with man will be right. Now, they may be angry or upset with you, but the That does not mean you have wronged them in any way. For example, were the Pharisees angry at Paul? The answer is rather obvious, isn't it? Did Paul wrong them? Were they angry with Jesus? Did Jesus wrong them? Were they angry with Peter and John? I mean, they even beat them. Did Peter and John wrong them? Were they angry with Judas? No. Because Judas sinned with them. You see the difference? see, Paul and Jesus and Peter and John and all the apostles, they were right with God. But the Pharisees and the world was mad at them. They were right with God and they were right with man in the sight of God. Although man wasn't right with other men were not right with them. But they were right with God and they were right with men. They hadn't wronged them. They hadn't stolen anything from them. They hadn't defrauded them in any way. They hadn't borne false witness about them. They hadn't taken their their wives or, or coveted their gold and their silver and all that. They had wronged them in no way. In fact, the Bible says in Luke 6, 26, Woe unto you, when all men shall speak well of you. For so did their fathers to the false prophets. Hey, if you're a false prophet like Judas, they'll like you. Really? Did they really like Judas? Not really. They weren't mad at him, though. But they didn't like Peter and John or Paul or Matthew or Luke or Mark or Thaddeus. Mm-mm. you see this is a confidence that god gives and and i notice there's several things here three things and then we're finished and hopefully i get done here first of all we are persuaded by his words notice verse 18 and 19 my little children let us not love in word neither in tongue but in deed and truth and hereby so it's by deed and truth the truth Hereby we know that we are of the truth and shall assure our hearts before him. So we're to be persuaded by his words. We know or we assure our hearts. That word assure means to be persuaded, to persuade one by words to believe. You know, what I'm trying to do here this morning is persuade you by the words of God to believe his word and to live by it. The word before. It says before him, so that word before means in the presence of. So it's like you're in the presence of God. You're walking in fellowship with him because you believe his words. So if you are before in the presence of God, that means you're walking in fellowship with him. Which is only possible if you're in agreement with him. You know, Amos three 3.3 says except. To agree. Except, um, if you, can two walk together, thank you, can two walk together, except they be agreed. You know, so if we're going to walk in fellowship with God, we've got to be in agreement with Him. So we are to be persuaded by His words. That's our assurance. Secondly, we're reminded of the greatness of our God. Uh, Notice verses 20 and 22. For if our heart condemn us, God is greater than our heart and knoweth all things. Beloved, if our heart condemn us not, then have we confidence toward God. I mean, so we're reminded that God is greater than us. And so we need to look to Him. We need to have confidence or trust in Him. We need to walk in fellowship with Him. We need to understand that He knows the end from the beginning, He knows our situation, He knows the end from the beginning. 1 John 5, 9 says this, If we receive the witness of men, the witness of God is greater. There's no greater witness than the witness of God. Again, Spurgeon, I remind you of what Spurgeon said. We said, quote, Sometimes our heart condemns us, but in doing so it gives us a wrong verdict. And then we have the satisfaction of being able to take the case into a higher court, for God is greater than our heart and knoweth all things. Unquote. You know, Jesus said in John 10, 27, My sheep hear my voice. Do you hear his voice? Do you hear his voice when you're under pressure? Ouch. It says, My sheep hear my voice, and I know them. You know, he knows when you're upset. He knows when you're hurting. Believe His words. When you're upset, when you're hurting, believe His words. This is my comfort in my affliction, for thy word hath quickened me. It's given me life. It's comfort. My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. See, we're to love in deed and in truth. That is pleasing in His sight. Remember, it's before God. God is there. And we need to walk with Him. You know, the question is, again, as we think about God's greatness, are, we, are you with Him or are you walking at a distance? So, we have persuaded of His words. We're reminded of His greatness. And third thing we see here is the confirmation... Confirmation of the Spirit, verses twenty-three and twenty-four, and this is his commandment that we should believe on the name of His Son, Jesus Christ, and love one another as he gave us commandment. And he that keepeth his commandments dwelleth in him, and he in him, and hereby we know that he abideth in us by the Spirit which he hath given us. So so God confirms to us his presence or his fellowship by his spirit. So when we keep and obey His commands or do His will, His Spirit will bear witness with our spirit that we are His children. That we are in His hand. That we are in His protection. That we do have His presence. That we do have access to His power. That He can enable us. That we are... His own look at chapter four and verse 13. Hereby know we that we dwell in him, and he in us because He hath given us of His spirit. Now what we'll are Romans eight? Romans eight talks a lot about the spirit of God. Romans eight and verse one says, "There is therefore now no condemnation to them which are in Christ Jesus." who walk not after the flesh, but after the Spirit. And then in verse uh, 9 it says, uh, But ye are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit, if so be that the Spirit of God dwell in you. Now if any man have not the Spirit of Christ, he is none of his. If you don't have the Spirit bear witness with your spirit that you are the Son of God, you need to examine your salvation or your relationship with the Lord. Verse 14, for as many as are led by the Spirit of God, they are the sons of God. For ye have not received the spirit of bondage again to fear, but ye have received the spirit of adoption, whereby we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit itself beareth witness with our spirit that we are the children of God. So the Spirit of God comes, like, comes alongside. He, he's the paraclete. He's the comforter. He's the one that comes alongside and he says, this, You're right. You're doing what is right. Or he may say, he may needle you and say, that's not right. That's not right. He pricks your conscience. Saul was pricked in his conscience, convicted by the Spirit of God. In other times, he was convinced that he was right. Because the Lord stood by him and told him. He confirmed his word to him. Now how do we know? How do we know we're walking in the spirit? Well, go to Ephesians chapter 5. What's our guide? What's it mean to walk in the spirit? Ephesians 5, 18. Be not drunk with wine where it's excess. Now if you're drunk with wine, you're controlled by it. it. It's a controlling substance. Just like drugs. And then it says, but be filled with the Spirit. So we could say, don't be controlled by wine, but be controlled or led by the Spirit. Romans 8 uses the word led. It really means the same thing. And then it says this. here's Here's the condition of a person, or the mindset, or the attitude, or the heart of a person who's filled with the Spirit. Speaking to yourselves in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody in your heart to the Lord giving thanks always for all things unto God and the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. And then there's a, a parallel passage to this in Colossians 3.16 where it says, Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly in all wisdom, teaching and admonishing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing with grace in your hearts to the Lord. You know, the bottom line is to, to, to be filled with the Spirit means to have your mind and heart filled with the word of God. And walking in obedience to the word of God. Because that's how the Spirit directs us. Jesus told his disciples in John 16 that the Spirit of God would guide us into all truth. He will not speak of Himself. He will speak of me, he says. And so we have this confirmation of the Spirit. Of God's confidence. Or the confidence of God. You know God wants us. To have confidence. In Him. Confidence in His love. We can't rely on our conscience. Conscience is not a reliable guide. No we need to rely on the word of God. We need to be persuaded by his words. Be reminded that the greatest, that God is greater than us, and allow his spirit to confirm to us his truth. You know, do you have confidence in God's love? Are you walking in his will? Are you in fellowship with him? Being conformed to his image? Are you convinced by his spirit that you are right? in his sight? As I said, if you're right this way, you're always right this way. Not everybody will be happy with you. Now if you're wrong here, you got something out of sorts here. If it's your fault, that is. And So Are you have confidence in him, in his love, or condemnation in him? Do you know him as your Lord and as your Savior?